James chapter 2, and we have been working our way through James, and we're in a very controversial passage. We're looking at 21 through 26, and the controversy is all over 24, verse 24. You see that a man is justified by works (laughs) and not by faith alone. Uh, That got James in a lot of trouble, and I've been trying to help you to understand that it shouldn't have, that he's okay, and that what he's saying is absolutely true. And so this morning, we're going to be taking a look at that. James wasn't teaching that works needed to be added to faith. Rather, he was concerned that his readers possessed the right kind of faith, a faith that works. And the need of this teaching in the church today is utterly necessary. Too many depend upon a pseudo-faith or a mere profession verbally of a religion that claims adherence to sound doctrine, but the life then exhibits selfishness and is devoid of personal holiness. Saving faith will always manifest itself through the existence and exhibition of active obedience to the Word of God. Those kind of works. That's a different kind of works. I mentioned already that this passage has been a big problem for many that see it contradicting the Apostle Paul's teaching that uh, justification is by faith alone without works. James also believes that. James does not teach anything different, but stresses the truth that saving faith will always produce works in the life of a believer. But people are always attempting to use their good works to gain merit with God, not realizing that we're saved by an alien righteousness and not our own righteousness through good deeds that we do. As Philippians 9, uh, 3, nine tells us very clearly, that I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own. I love this verse, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law or from keeping things that we do, but rather that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes uh, from God alone on the basis of faith, Philippians 3, 9. So as believers, we possess an alien righteousness, one that is outside of ourselves. It's, it's nothing to do with us. It's all been done by someone else, and that righteousness that Jesus Christ won on the cross is then imputed to us. It's given and reckoned to our account. Very, very important. Now, this is despite all the good works that a person could ever do. And being raised in a a faith tradition that counts on works to gain merit with God, I'm familiar with this and the guilt that goes with it because you can never do enough good works. You're always wondering if you're going to come out right in the balances. There are no balances. (laughs) You are either in Christ or you are not. And if you're in Christ, then it's completed because he said it is finished. And his work is finished, and you're trusting in his work, not your work. There's quite a difference. Paul ministered primarily to pagans with no clear idea about God, and James wrote to Jews who took pride in their theological knowledge. 
They were the oracles of God. They wrote down the Old Testament. And they tended to think that their heritage and knowledge guaranteed them God's favor. And Jesus was forever and a day challenging them throughout the Gospels, wasn't he? In today's vernacular, they would have said to James, I'm a Christian already. I've been baptized. I go to church. I even attend Bible studies. Get off my back. What are you talking to me about salvation for? (laughs) Well, if your salvation is based upon what you do, that's not salvation. That's not saving faith. That is not what the Bible teaches. And so, to such, the story of John Wesley would be very instructive, possibly. Wesley went to Oxford Dictionary, uh, excuse me, (laughs) Oxford Seminary. (laughs) If anybody wants to buy me a birthday present, I'd like the Oxford Dictionary, if you would, please. It's, it's, uh, It's very expensive and it's very large. So that's, when I see Oxford, I think dictionary, I'm sorry. Oxford Seminary for five years, and then he became a minister in the Church of England. This is John Wesley. And he served for about 10 years in that Church of England, and later he became a missionary, and he went to the colony of Georgia here in the United States. Wesley was largely a failure in the ministry, though he was, as we would count men, very pious. And for years he got up to uh, pray at about 4 a.m. in the morning and read his Bible before going to prisons and hospitals to minister to the neediest people that he could find. He would teach, he would pray, and he'd help others until late at night. Pretty much just about wore himself out serving. And on the way to America, there was a great storm at sea and waves broke over the deck And the wind shredded the sails until the little ship he was on seemed sure to sink. Wesley, lacking assurance of his salvation, was terrified that he was going to die. And despite all of his good works, death was a frightening question mark in his mind. He asked, oh, on the other side of the ship, he saw a group of people, men, and they were singing hymns. And he went over and he asked them how they could sing when they might die that very night. And they replied, if this ship goes down, we go up to be with the Lord forever. They had assurance, right? Vast difference. Vast difference. So Wesley wondered how on earth they could know that. He knew that Jesus was the Savior of the world, but he did not know Jesus had saved him personally. He didn't know that yet. Seminary grad minister in the Church of England, missionary, good grief. Worse, he thought the solution lay in works. What more had they done, those ones that were singing praises as the ship was going down, what more had they done than I have done, he asked himself. And he added, I came to convert the heathen, but who will convert me? He worked very hard but fruitlessly in Georgia and returned to England in disgrace. He made his way to London and he found on his way one night into a formal, informal service where he heard a man reading a sermon by Martin Luther explaining that genuine faith, or what I call saving faith, trusts Christ alone for salvation apart from works. And he listened. And as he listened, he realized 
he had relied on his own works and not on Christ alone. (laughs) Is this not a good story? Is this not the same story that that principal of the Christian school down at Grace Community Church had? Many, many years he served. Many years he was in the church. And yet God marvelously came to him. That night he wrote in his journal, about a quarter before nine, while Luther was describing the changes which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that had taken, that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. He got saved. After all those works, the man finally came to have peace in Christ. So in this final few verses of James that I'm going to be going over today, attempting to, James was attempting to rattle his Jewish audience because they were self-satisfied and many of those were those who perhaps trusted in their heritage or works rather than Jesus Christ. And so he uses two Old Testament characters to rouse them. Again, James shows that what Luther called genuine faith, and I have been calling saving faith, will always result in works. And James uses a a prime example of faith, Father Abraham. Is there any greater example of faith than Abraham? And then the infamous Old Testament prostitute, Rahab. To prove his point. This is, this is marvelous stuff, and I know we have communion today, but we might have to eat our lunch and then come back or something because there's so much material here. He says in 2.24, you see that a man is justified by works and not faith alone. And with that, I'd just like to open in a word of prayer, and we'll get to our text. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that James just labored uh, with those in his audience that were possibly depending on things that they were doing or their heritage or their upbringing. Mom and dad were Christian. Mom and dad were Jewish. Mom and dad were God-fearers. It doesn't matter, Lord. What matters is that we will face you on our own individually someday. And Father, we want to be justified. We want to be declared righteous with an alien righteous, one not our own because we know we are unrighteous. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would use uh, these words today to open hearts and open minds. And, Father, for some of us, it'll be a, a huge reaffirmation of our faith. And to others, it will challenge. And, Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would have free reign today in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me read you uh, just a couple of verses here, beginning in 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? And you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, in the same way, was not Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So let me open these verses up to you and help you to understand what James is meaning. First, he's talking about the priority of faith, or is he talking about the proof of faith? That's the question we need to answer. James goes to the apex, the the actual pinnacle of Jewish heritage and faith, Father Abraham. And in 2.21, taken without considering the context of James' epistle directly, they would contradict Paul's words in Romans 4.2 where he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son? Because Paul says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So he's saying it wasn't Abraham's works. And James is saying it was Abraham's works. And who on earth is right here? And does the Bible contradict itself? It doesn't contradict itself. This is exactly where taking the context of the author's intent into consideration is so important in your interpretation of Scripture. James was really challenging his audience to consider the proof of their faith, whereas Paul was especially talking to pagans, Romans, if you will, emphasize the priority of their faith. There were two different goals at play here, and when the context is considered, there is no conflict between the two. Another thing that might help us to understand James' perspective is that there are two meanings to the term justified. When we consider Abram's life, we we see that Genesis 15.6 is the point at which God's word tells us Abraham, his faith was counted to him for righteousness. Why don't you turn back there real quickly? Genesis 15.6. We'll kind of be in and out of Genesis today a little bit. And Joshua. 15.6. Starting in 15.1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Don't fear, Abram. For I am your shield to you, and your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, Oh, Lord God. What will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in his house. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is going to be my heir. And then behold, the word of Yahweh came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Now, you realize that Abraham is childless, and it was 25 years before God's promise was given to him of a son. And he took him outside, God did, and he, sh- uh, he said to him, now look up to the heavens and count the stars if you're able and, uh, to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And then he believed in the Lord, and he, God, the Lord, Yahweh, reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is chapter 15, verse 6. When was the sacrifice of Isaac? Anybody know? Genesis what? 22, okay? This took place years before Genesis 22. We'll get to that. Very, very interesting. Isaac 
had not even been born at the time of Genesis 15.6 because he was still without children. And in fact, at that time, Abraham was questioning God because he and Sarah were still childless, even though God had promised that he'd have many descendants and that he would make a great nation of them, which all presuppose having a child. His great promises to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, are found in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And Abraham would have as many descendants as the dust of the earth, which would necessitate an offspring. So in Genesis 15, we see him pleading with God, where's my offspring? I'm going to use Eliezer as my, as my heir. And God says, no way. You're going to have a child. And you will have as many children as you won't even be able to count your offspring. This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And so God is reiterating his promise to him, and that is when God counted his faith. That's when Abraham said, I believe. I believe you're going to do that. In Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed in the Lord, and Yahweh reckoned it as faith to him for righteousness. Now, the sacrifice of Isaac did not take place till many years after this. And so Abraham's faith, being reckoned to him as righteousness, had nothing to do with his offering to Isaac, but everything to do with Abraham believing in the promise of God. So how do we take James 2.21? Then it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Not talking about faith there. Not talking about genuine faith. Not talking about saving faith there. Talking about his works. The word justified, dikaiao, in the Greek, has a meaning of acquittal. Acquittal, or to declare uh, or treat a person as righteous. That's the one that we usually think about. Justified by faith. Justification. Just as though I never sinned, right? That's what we usually think about. That's only one meaning. And it is a true meaning. Romans 3.24 says that we have been justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. But there's also a secondary meaning to the word justified. Same Greek word, okay, in that it can pertain to vindication or proof of righteousness. That is so important. In Romans 3, 4, Paul used that Greek word, justify, in his secondary sense. May it never be, he says in Romans 3, 4, rather let God be found true, though every man found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words. That you may be vindicated in your words, God. That every man's a liar, and that God is true. And prevail when you are judged, God. And again, in 1 Timothy 3.16, another usage in a secondary sense, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated. Was vindicated. And that word is justified. Was justified in the spirit. And so it is the secondary sense that James' question comes to play. Was not Abraham our father vindicated by his works? Vindicated. 
The ultimate demonstration of Abraham's faith was when he offered up his son Isaac. It was not the source of his justification, as though by doing that work he became justified with God, but rather that Abraham was displaying his faith when he offered up Isaac. And and look at the depth of Abraham's faith as displayed at that time. Turn to Genesis chapter 22 real quickly with me. Let me read to you just um, the first three verses. Now came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son. That's interesting because he had another one named Ishmael, which was not recognized by God. Your only son, whom you love, first usage of the word love in the Bible, Isaac. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will tell you. And so Abraham, he rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. So we have here the display. Abraham is doing what God told him to do. He obeyed without a word, not a question, just immediate and complete obedience to what God required of him. And in verses uh, 4, 5, and 6, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad. Incidentally, the young men who were his servants that went with him, and the word lad are the same Hebrew word. Isaac was not just a little child at this time. He was a young man. He was a young man at this time. I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac his son, and took uh, in his hand the fire and the knife so that the two of them walked together. So they get to the place that God was going to show them. Abraham didn't question anything, and Abraham was not beyond questioning God. He questioned him a lot, okay? We're going to get into Abraham's life and that he wasn't sinlessly perfect, Okay, he was just a human being. He was a sinner like the rest of us. And he goes to the place that God shows him, and he's got his two servants with him, and he takes his son, Isaac, and the knife and the fire and the wood, and Isaac's carrying the wood for him. And Abraham's faith is also witnessed here when he told his young men, the lad and I will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. He told the two servants, we're going to go over and worship and return to you. We, meaning Isaac and myself. Now, God had told him to present him as a burnt offering. That means everything, gone. And yet Abraham said, we will return to you. That was the display of his faith. In verses 7 through 8, I love this. Isaac spoke to Abram, (laughs) his father, and he said, my father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? 
you're going to be the offering, Isaac. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. Abraham said in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. Was that faith? He was believing God was going to do something to make this happen. God will provide for himself a lamb. You see, James says, you see that faith was working with his works. Faith was working together with Abraham's works. That's in James chapter 2. It wasn't that Abraham was gaining anything by his obedience, but rather that faith came out into the open. And James goes on to say that Abraham's faith was perfected or fulfilled and completed. Genuine faith, saving faith, is always producing works, and the works of genuine faith are the outworking of that faith. They're the result of true faith. Good works are as much a part of genuine faith as fruit is on a fruit tree. And Jesus cursed a fig tree and made it wither away because it wasn't giving its fruit because that's the natural outwork of a fruit tree is to give fruit. The natural outworking of faith is to produce works. That's what James is talking about when he said in verse 22 that the scripture was fulfilled, that the principle that genuine faith produces good works is completed, it's perfected. It actually does this. This is the climax of Abraham's faith. When he was willing to offer even his son, his only son, the one which all the promises of God were dependent God spoke and affirmed vindication of his faith by what he did. Look at Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 17 through 19. And by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called, and he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham was trusting the promises of God given first in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and then repeated a number of times leading up to this point where God asked him to sacrifice his son. All the covenant, every promise that God had made to Abraham was wrapped up in this boy, young man, Isaac. And God says, take him out. So Abraham's reasoning in his mind, if I take him out, God's going to raise him back from the dead. He's got to do something because everything's tied up in this kid. I waited years and years and years, 25 years for him. And then I, I loved him for, I don't know, maybe 20 years, 25 years. He is a young man. And now God tells me to kill him? How will the promises be fulfilled? And so Abraham just reasoned in his mind, we don't have anything else, I'm speculating this, reasoning in his mind. He's going to do something because he would not take away his word. He is true. You see his faith, how it's completely completed and perfect here? By faith, Abraham When he was tested, offered up Isaac. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received Isaac back as a type. 
That was faith in God's word. Abraham believed that God would miraculously preserve Isaac's life, even if it meant bringing him back from the dead. Now, when I think of Abraham leaving all that was familiar to him, and even leaving his father Haran for the land of God when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans, I'm reminded of Luther's wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress, where he says this, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. That's faith. That's faith. So, James points out the faith of Father Abraham, not that he was justified by his faith through his good work of killing his son or being willing to kill his son. In his mind, it was a done deal, and God would have to raise him back from the dead, and he just obeyed him. He wasn't justified and gained his righteousness through that. That came years before when he trusted God's word and promise. That was counted to him for righteousness. And so James uses Abraham, the hero of the Jewish faith. He's talking to Jewish people, right, from the dispersion. Next, he goes to the lowest person on the totem pole. This is marvelous stuff. From the epitome of Jewish heritage and faith to the example of a Canaanite, a Gentile woman, woman, and a harlot. Okay, we all know what intersectionality is, right? Because we're all exposed to wokeism now. This woman was woke, man. She had it going on. She was a Gentile. She was a Canaanite. Okay, she was a woman. In Jewish culture, yeah, women were not treated in the same way that Jesus introduced women to be treated. And to boot, she was a prostitute. And so James runs from Abraham to Rahab and uses her as an example. How amazing. Proclaiming the wonderful grace of God and the work in the lives of two polar opposites, and that faith was displayed in both of their lives through their works. I love it. It says, and in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also. So he puts Rahab on the same level with Father Abraham. (laughs) I, I, I can't imagine the first reading of this by his audience. They must have went, oh! But that's what he did. She was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out on another way. Now, the story of Rahab and how she gave the men from Israel a safe place, sent into the land to spy it out, is found in Joshua chapter 2. You can put your finger in there, Joshua 2. And when we look at portions of Joshua 2 to get just the gist of this amazing woman's faith displayed by her works, if you look at Joshua chapter 2, um, verse 1, we have, Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, uh, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and they came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. Then go to verse um, 8. And before they lay down, she came up to the roof and, and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. 
talking about the nation of Israel. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before, uh, before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were uh, beyond the Jordan, Shihon and Og, and whom you utterly destroyed. Whom we heard it, our hearts melted, with no courage remaining in any man any longer because of you, Israel. For the Lord your God, for Yahweh your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now she just recited a catechism lesson to the two spies. And she was affirming who she understood Yahweh to be. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's house and household and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. That's her story. Her faith is obviously her confirmation that Yahweh, God, is the God of the heavens above and the earth below. And we read in Hebrews 11.31 that by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient, but after she had welcomed the spies in peace. She's justified by faith. She's justified by her works. She's justified by faith. She's justified by her works. The answer is yes. Yes. And those, those works of hiding those spies was done from a heart that was convinced that God, Yahweh, was a God of the heavens and a God of the, earth, the God of the earth. He was sovereign over all. Now, let me tell you, she was born into and brought up in a terrible and debauched pagan society. She was a harlot. Hello. An evil society that God was about to destroy. And it was a culture where lying and immorality were the norm. And of which Rahab was well acquainted. But by the undeserved favor of God, Rahab, when God was near to her, check out Isaiah 55, when he is near, you need to trust him responded in faith toward him, identifying him correctly as Lord, Yahweh, and as sovereign over the heavens and the earth. And God obviously accepted her trust in him and her service to him because he rewarded her. Hebrews eleven six, which I read to you during the prayer today. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is Did she believe that he is? Yes. Yes. And that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Did she believe he would reward her? She asked for a blessing upon her family and herself. Yes. So Rahab is an example of just that kind of belief. Now God did not, anywhere in the Bible, commend Rahab's prostitution, nor her lying when the king's men came to ask where the spies were. That's a different deal. And I'll leave that with God. Okay? She came from a debauched society. But she was doing it from a heart of faith and a heart of confidence that God 
She wanted to protect God's men. And something else that's very, very important that I'll get to in a moment. She saw them as messengers, people. Just put a pin in that. She saw them as messengers. Now, God is the savior of all who trust him. And that's really the point that I want to get to today, is that he saves the great and the small. It doesn't matter. Abraham, though he held the highest esteem by Jewish folks, his life was peppered with moral failures and, and faith fractures. When famine hit the land in Genesis chapter 12, and God, the land that God brought him to, he decided he was going to go down to Egypt. You remember the story, right? And once there, in order to preserve himself, he told his wife Sarah to lie and say she was his sister. Abraham, Father Abraham, okay? And then he lapsed in believing that God would give him children and was going to use his servant, Eliezer Damascus, of Damascus to be his heir, which God corrected. And then when God prolonged Abraham's wait, he capitulated to Sarah's idea to use Hagar. And out came Ishmael, the father of Arabs. How'd that go for Israel? Right? And then... Why is this? Abraham again claimed Sarah was his sister to King Ambimelech in Genesis 20, 13, 11 through 13. And yet Abraham is called the friend of God. David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba, is called a man after God's own heart. Something happens to these men. So a great man, Abraham, was not without sin, yet God in his marvelous mercy and grace saved him. And there's hope for you. You know, many put their hope in the family that they raised because they're doing okay. Some put their hope in the fact that they're good people and they give to uh, charities and maybe at church and maybe go to church occasionally and so forth. And their hopes in that, that's all works. Even your family. You need to put your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Rahab, on the other hand, (laughs) what a contrast, would have been considered a scum in the eyes of the religious Jews, having not one but many strikes against her, being a Canaanite, being a woman, being a prostitute. She ended up in the genealogy of Jesus. It's recorded in Matthew 1.5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. She was Boaz's mom. She, together with Tamar, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, they were all in the genealogy. And let me tell you, okay, Tamar, she played the harlot. And Uriah's wife committed adultery with David. Women being mentioned in the genealogy is unheard of, but there's Rahab with Tamar and Tamar and Bathsheba, all together in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And, and what I want to say is there's hope for everybody, okay? From, the, from the, the most great person, harder, harder for them, to the lowest person on the totem pole socially, there's hope. And it's all the same because the greatest has to come to the same conclusion that the least has to come to. And that is that they're sinful and barred from heaven except for trusting in the faith of Jesus Christ. 
Abraham gave up everything in his faith. Abraham, when looking at Isaac and considered God's command to sacrifice him, faced two conflicts. Number one, his love for his son. No less than 14 references to Isaac in that chapter. 14 references. And Abraham's relationship with Isaac is expressed in verse 2 with the first usage of the word love in the Bible. The son that you love. Not the love of a mother for her child or even the love of a man for his wife, but the first mention of love is a love of a father for his son. Does that sound God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? And so the first aspect of conflict seen in Abraham's instance was love for his son. Secondly, Abraham's confidence in the promises of God, as I mentioned, he has promised a land, a seed, blessing for all the families of the earth. And all God's covenant with Abraham was predicted to be in his offspring, Isaac. He believed God when God told him and reaffirmed his covenant to him in Genesis fifteen six, and God therefore counted him to righteousness. But years later, in Genesis 22, when God asked him to sacrifice everything that he held with hope, he obeyed and willingly took his hands off and gave it all to God. That's an exhibit of his faith that was already present with him. He didn't gain faith by that. And Rahab gave up everything in her faith. She placed her life in the hands of Yahweh, and if the king discovered her alliance with the, 20, uh, with the two Israelites, she would have died, as well as her whole family. She chose to believe and act upon her faith and save the two men, thereby rescuing her entire family. So summary is, faith and works are inseparable. You can't separate them. There is no place for a Christian that has no works manifesting in their lives. No place. You can't find it in the Bible. And James summarizes it in the last verse of chapter 2. For just as the body without the spirit's dead, so faith without works is dead. The biggest thing, I think, that will help you to understand these works that faith produces is the works that we're talking about are, are motivated by gratitude. They're motivated by gratitude to God for what he's done on our behalf. That's the works that come from genuine faith. The difference between works that try to gain merit with God, those aren't motivated by gratitude. They're motivated by a fear that God is going to come down hard on you if you don't do these things. It's an obligation. You're living under bondage and fear that if you don't do good things, God will not be pleased with you. That's not the kind of works that are pleasing to God because without faith, it's impossible to please him, right? So when we do things because we're so grateful to God, I often say to myself, what, what on earth more can I do? He died in my place. What can I do for him? Right? That's the attitude we need to have. What is it you want? Money? I, it's all yours anyways. My life? Okay. Beloved, we just came through a very, very huge test 
It was called the pandemic, right? There were a lot of people that were really challenged in their fear of death. Should we as believers be fearful of death? Okay, now Taliabu used to tease me because I knew I hated flying. Taliabu were an isolated group of tribal people that I worked with for 17 years, and we had a little twin-engine plane that would come in and pick us up and take us out. I want to tell you, I had more hair-raising experiences in that little plane than you can shake a stick at. For years afterwards, I've white-knuckle flyer, right? Because storms happen, and little planes bounce with every little bit of wind, and, and they knew I hated flying. And after they became believers, they used to chide me and say, why are you afraid of flying? And I said, no, I'm not afraid of dying. They said, well, what are you afraid of? I said, the time between falling and, and hitting. That's all. Okay? That satiated them. But, you know, as I'm getting older, I, I just really, I, I look forward to the next step. The next step is the grand one. The next step kicks off all of eternity. There's no turning back. The next step is when I see Jesus face to face, whether he comes to get me in the air or, or I die to go be with him. And I, I'm not saying I look forward to it in a morbid way, but I look forward to it, right? And until then, what do I have that I haven't been given? And why should I be afraid of death? Now, that doesn't mean you go stand in the middle of a freeway and challenge oncoming cars. That's stupid, And the same thing with the pandemic. Doesn't mean you go up and rub up against everybody, right? It's stupid. You use common sense, but at the same time, were your lives governed by fear during that time? If so, question your heart. Where is your heart? I I want you to turn with me. I believe it's in 2 Corinthians. And this is a great, great ending note, actually. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I better be right here. Yes. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Um, This morning, preparing, reading over the the sermon and stuff and praying over it, I thought, Steve, you're going to challenge people. And some people don't have assurance of their salvation. And you're going to make them uncomfortable. And I struggled with that, and I prayed about that. But you know, the truth of the matter is, if this is making you uncomfortable, so be it. So be it. I love you. I'm not trying to cause you panic attacks or anything like that. But if you're uncomfortable with this, you really need to listen to this verse. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians in verse 5. He says, test test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. We should always be testing our faith. We should always be looking at ourselves and just reaffirming the fact, do I trust him, implicitly trust him? And the answer has always got to come back with a resounding yes. And sometimes he asks hard things of us. Hard things. Don't forget James chapter 1, right? with those tests of faith that are only given to us to affirm us, not for evil, ever. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of the gospel. 
that we can trust you when you say that whoever believes in you with all their heart and who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, that they are saved. We thank you for how clear your gospel is. And we pray, God, that you would just make it clear to us individually so that we can have that assurance of faith that comes from your Holy Spirit affirming our spirit that we are yours. Not perfect, but we are yours. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.